Hello and welcome to the Meet Your Species podcast. My name is Heath and today we had a very special guest. This is uh, Jessica Holland. She is a director and co-founder of C4 Atlanta, which is a company that focuses on uh, connecting art entrepreneurs, people who want to have um, a career in the arts to the tools and experience and just whatever they need to actually make a proper career. Uh, It's a very interesting program. I came across it when uh, there was a seminar they had on, I think, healthcare. And this was back in 2014, I think. And they had a a session on, uh, I think it was the healthcare plan. This is when the Affordable Care Act was passed and everyone had to get on a plan. So they had a... um, a whole presentation on exactly how to go about it like all the details it was very helpful and so I got to know Jessica and um, she agreed to sit down for one of these podcasts which was lovely and I learned a lot and I really um, I enjoyed getting to know her and her story and uh, what this company does because it's very interesting and now it's (laughs) been so many years since then this is 2020 so um, they've been still hard at work and I think you will find this podcast very interesting. So with that, I give you Jessica. Oh, and before uh, I just want to mention, we filmed this in the building that they were at at the time. And there was, you know, lots of work going on in the background. I didn't realize how much echo there was and background noise. I tried to fix the audio as best I can, but please forgive me for that. But anyway, uh, without further ado, I give you Jessica Holland. Welcome, Jessica. Let us dive in. So, um, I like mostly to start with past, just so people can get to know you. So, what was your childhood like? So, what? what, Your childhood, like? Childhood? Oh, okay, wow. Wow, we're going way back. Um, Just so people can kind of get a feel for how you think. Sure. I I came from, um, you know, I grew up, you know, formative childhood, I guess, was mainly 80s, 90s, so I'm sort of a, a product of the um, end of the Gen X you know, generation um, and right before the millennial generation. So right there on the cusp, uh, I came from a relatively large family um, and, you know, my parents were Catholic or anything like that. That was the first question we always got, like, why do your parents have so many kids? Um, <laughs> there were five of us. Um, which, you know, growing up in that environment, you don't really think about having a lot of brothers and sisters, but this was at an age, I think, when people were maxing out at three kids. Right. (laughs) Um, So, uh, yeah, I mean, there was always a lot of activity in the house, and um, it was my mom who um, was staying home mostly with the kids and was always trying to find um, unique things for us to do, um, mainly to get us out of the house. Of course, she can clean or whatever, right? <laughs> yeah, or just like take a break. <laughs> no noise, yeah. Uh, meditate or whatever she needed to do. But um, yeah, so we had um, we had a lot of outdoor activities that we did. We played outside a lot. We were very active. Uh, we engaged um, our imagination and play constantly. Um, we were all over the neighborhood. And uh, I know that's a little bit different than the way my kids have been brought up. Um, mm-hmm. So was this Georgia? This is Georgia, yeah. So I grew up in Gwinnett County. So I am a Metro Atlanta native, and um, went to school um, 
mostly in Georgia. I think there was about a six-month period where I lived in South Carolina and then we moved back. So graduated, went to school in Georgia, went to school in West Georgia. So started acting when I was seven. Started my first acting class. That was one of the other attempts to get us out of the house. Um, and uh, and then fell in love with it and, uh, and majored, you know, ended up majoring in it in college. So. Okay, and in performing arts. And performing arts, yes. Nice. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and you know, at the university level, they make you do everything. So you stage manage, build sets, and all that. But my primary um, love was working on the script as an actor. Interesting. What was it that drew you to that? It was probably one person, a guy named Joe Catalanato, and he was one of the first people that offered um, acting classes in Gwinnett County. And I think it. It was, um, we started out doing uh, improvisation exercises, and it's, it's different than I think what a lot of people think of as improv, which is um, theater sports or you know, comedy improv. It was just a, a way to kind of tap into character, tap into your imagination. And for a seven-year-old, it was very easy to do. There's not a lot of inhibition. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was just a lot of fun. It, that's what it was, it was a lot of fun. It's good for right? Yeah, yeah. Good for around making stories. <laughs> I like it. It's so much easier when you're a kid. I feel like it, the older we get, sometimes you get too solid and you have to be logical and work all the time. Yeah. Just letting go. Yeah, I mean, I think there's been a couple of studies around that. You know, if you go into a kindergarten class and you ask, you know, how many of the kids in there are you an artist? You know, you have almost all the kids raise their hand and enthusiastically. Mm -hmm. And then by the time you move through grade school, get to the fifth grade, you get asked the same question. And by the fifth grade, you've got maybe one or two kids. You've got those kids who like to draw comics or mm -hmm. uh, are, who are always doodling a lot who think of themselves as artists. And so it's somewhere in there where we're starting to be shifted into our perspective roles and, and being an artist is a role um, that's been assigned to people. Mm -hmm. Interesting. I can totally see that. It's like, uh, I think about people all the time, I'm like, everyone seems to be against people playing games or whatever, mm -hmm. but they don't realize that most people are playing a game anyway. It's just, I'm playing fireman, I'm playing businessman, I'm playing right. teacher, whatever, right. it's all in the game or character. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think acting sees it that way as well. Yeah, I mean, I could be, I could be biased. Yeah. <laughs> been an actor for a minute. Yeah. Um, okay, so, so native Georgian uh, actor went to college here. Spent a lot of time. What uh, were some influential people along the way to help shape the way you think? Or maybe experience. Um, I think you know, um, even in in high school, I had. Um, a couple of theater teachers that uh, I, I went to a school. It wasn't wasn't really a magnet school. You know, those are very popular right now. But it was a school with a very strong program. I was very fortunate to go there. Um, a very strong program in theater. And um, Hattie Lindahl, and I think she still heads up the um, the drama uh, department over at Brookwood High School uh, in Gwinnett County. And then um, Jan Lindenfeld. So two. Two people in my life that throughout high school um, gave me a lot of opportunities. Um, I went to a small college, I went to the University of West Georgia, and um, my first year there was the first year of um, 
uh, instructor, Shelley Elman, and now she's, a, I think, an associate professor. Yeah. But, um, but we, we kind of clicked, and I think she helped me with roles and with exercises that um, would also stretch you know, my uh, abilities as a performer. Mm -hmm. Um, but also, you know, taught me to understand that, you know, you do, you do have a type, I guess, as an actor. Mm -hmm. And sometimes right out of the gate, you know, understanding that type helps you get jobs. Sure. Because yeah. it's probably like anything else. You can try and do everything and you'll fail at everything. But if you kind of hone it in a little bit, right. you figure out your box. Yeah, narrowing your focus a little bit. Um, as far as experiences, I mean, um, well, let's stick with uh, that the the people for a minute. So sure. There's, there's people you mentioned along the mm -hmm. way. What um, beyond acting stuff? Did any of them help you, or just as a person, kind of growing and shaping how you think? Yeah, I mean, I think again, Shelley Oman, and and um, I think when you get into college, there's this definitely. I mean, there's a separation, I think, from your parents when you start forming your own ideas. Um, when I was um, 19, I got pregnant. My, you know, my, um, what was that, end of my, yeah, my sophomore year, I found out. And, um, and, I, and that was, um, you know, everybody around me thought that I needed to drop out of school. And, and even my parents, and, and they didn't mean it in a, that, you know, it, that's just what they thought you did. You know, mm -hmm. you get pregnant in school, and so, well, that's it. You can't continue to learn, so you right. drop out. And I was very determined not to do that. And I think Shelly was one of those people that um, helped me through that um, because uh, I did, you know, actually marry the guy who knocked me up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're still married today. We've been married for almost 17 years. Um, and, uh, and we raised a kid while we were in college. And we did that with a very strong support community. I think, um, you through, know, through college, through yeah. college, yeah, college, you know, through family, definitely through family, um, his family, my family, um, but also through uh, my peers, my friends, people who are part of my theater company, um, Shelley, you know, helping us with uh, things like scholarships and um, going to rehearsals and bringing a kid with you or a baby, just allowing you that freedom that. Yeah. Yeah, and it was very, it was very, you know, I, I know this word doesn't always have the best connotation, but it was very communal in that respect because um, you know you would show up at a rehearsal and you'd have your kid passed around to like <laughs> different people who were more than willing to be a part of that, that child's life, and I think that shaped my daughter as well, uh, my oldest daughter. I can imagine. Yeah, I mean she's very comfortable with adults, very comfortable. Interesting. There's a, I think there's a culture, I don't, I don't want to say it's specific, it could be wrong, but uh, there's a culture that essentially raises everyone together as a village, still to right. this day, yeah. because they don't have the concept of, these are the parents and this is the kid, it's theirs, it's everyone's responsibility. Yeah, yeah I, I think, I mean, even largely in the United States, you know, um, that was a, a big part of um, the history you know, um, that if you had a, a, a mother who had passed, you still had your, your aunt, you know, your mm -hmm. cousins who were older than you to help raise you. Or if your 
um, father was an alcoholic. <laughs> you still had maybe an uncle nearby within, you know, a, a pretty tight radius. And uh, being spread out, I, I don't, you know, I'm not going to put a value judgment on any of that. But I think that we try to find family in other ways, you know. Definitely. Well, we definitely need the connection. Right. Yeah, for sure. human beings. <laughs> beings. <laughs> um, okay. So that sounds like an experience that helped shape you, I'd imagine. Getting right up so going through college and all that. Yeah, it did. And it's funny, I have to stop and think about it as an experience. It was really just kind of like, that's what I did, you know, right. and, it's just and it was just my life. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, I forget about that. Um, so yeah, I mean, I ended up graduating with honors in four years. Um, nice. And learned how to navigate uh, Medicaid and all of that, you know, so I could have this child and yeah. she could be healthy. With people complain about these social programs all the time, and I understand what they're saying, but at the same time, this really helped you <laughs> in some way. Yeah, I mean, I'm not. I'm. I. I don't think I'm. The typical face that people attach to her critics of those programs, um, and I think oftentimes people forget that, you know, when they work, they really work. You know, mm -hmm. as being a, a stopgap. You know, I continue to go to school. I got an education. I pay. I've been paying back to the system. Mm -hmm. You know, for a long time, and I'm happy to do so. You know, to provide that stopgap. Um, and and so yeah, I mean, I think as a society. You know, in years and years from now, we'll be judged how we took care of people who were less fortunate. Yeah. Well, isn't that uh, essentially the way you judge character? How, you, how one treats people who you don't perceive as having any impact on your life? So, like, yeah. yeah. Whether it's people in the street or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And it's always, it's, it's not as easy as it, it's a, you know, as you think of it, because you, you know, if somebody's not in your life and it, except through a passing moment, you know, it's easy to ignore that person and to walk on by. And, um, I, you know, I'll be the first one that I've been guilty of that. You know, working downtown, you, you do see a lot of people who are in need. And it's hard, too, because I think um, there's this problem, you know, but nobody really knows how to to help it because it's so systemic. Or even understand it. Or even understand it, yeah. yeah I think yeah. that's one of the biggest problems. Yeah. Just a complete ignorance of what is going on. Right. There's a lot of misconception. Mean, for example, that homeless people don't have jobs. And in fact, a lot of them do have jobs, mm -hmm. but they don't have the kind of job that provides a home for them. Yeah. Or because they don't have uh, an address like a PO box or anything, you can't even get certain jobs. Right. Yeah. Um, are there any other things you wanted to talk about that help change, just kind of percolate that brain change? Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, um, you know, I don't know how deep we want to go into things. I did grow up with a parent that had a mental illness, and so oh, okay. that was something that um, was, uh, you know, and it, it sounds weird, but it, it's one of those things that's beautiful and, and horrible at the same time. And uh, to, to understand exactly how the mind works is, I think we're just getting to that point, you know, mm -hmm. that we're, you know, not even from a, um, a psychological standpoint, but understanding, you know, neurons and the function of the brain. And, uh, and I think that, um, you know, unfortunately for my mom, 
help came way too late. Um, and, and that was part of her upbringing. It was part of a, a Southern upbringing, that, that, that social stigma that's attached to mental illness. And, and you see that you have the backlash now because of all of the pharmaceutical commercials. And people are like, oh, we're all on pills. And may, that may be true. But I think also this, sometimes the society lends itself to mental illness. Totally. I think, yeah, it's definitely a combination of things. Right, like, yeah. Because there's never one cause. It's like symptoms right. of root causes that we don't even understand, and then symptoms, and we try and fix right. the symptoms, which causes more symptoms. Yeah. Terrible negative cycle. Yeah, yeah, it is. And I think, you know, with having a parent that has that, um, it's it's painful to watch. And, but what it also does is it, it gives you the compassion for people who are in that situation, and, and then on the other side of that, there's a fear that kind of is always present in your life because of things like heredity, and you know, right. it, it, am I doing this like mom did it, and does that, and you know, what I found, and, and even going you know, to therapy to talk about these issues is that, that um, I'm not my mom, and I don't have those problems that she had. Um, so, it, it, you know, but I think even as a parent, you look at your kids and you think, I wonder what, if they hit adulthood, are they going to be grappling with some of these same issues? Right. So, well, as someone who has kids and thinks about this, are there any steps you've taken to try and make sure that you can provide as much support to I, I think... Um, it's not that I want to shield my children from my past, but I don't necessarily need to share every detail about their grandmother who's now passed, you know, um, I think for the sake of a memory. But there is a certain honesty that I do have with them about, you know, now that they're older, they're 12 and 16, um, about the things in your life, just like you probably mentioned, or I have mentioned, you know, that um, my grandmother had diabetes or that my mom had diabetes. and so. Uh, there's that that runs in the family. So um, on my husband's side, it's been cancer. So you, you are even those things are you're cognizant of um, within you know your children. I think for something like mental illness, if you you know you approach it from you know being honest with your kids and saying if you ever feel like you need support or need to go talk to somebody or want that, then you provide that avenue. You know, and give it, you know, provide an environment where they feel like they can come and talk to you if they're feeling um, like depressed or upset. And, you know, not that this has been the experience of my, my children, but they have had friends who have, um, have had larger issues, you know, um, with, uh, with depression. And so even being able to talk about that and understand that and explore that is something that's very important for them. That's got to be a nice exposure. I mean, it's not fun going through it, especially having everything else in school, but yeah. to see that at that age. I know, for me, seeing and experiencing things that maybe some other people didn't has helped me as an adult have a more perspective on what's serious and what's not as serious. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And I think it, it makes, um, you know, I, I feel like my daughter's, um, are very empathetic, you know, very empathetic kids. Um, and, uh, 
you know, we all went to go see the movie The Fault in Our Stars. Yeah, John Green's movie. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you know, we love the book. My husband came with us too. He did not cry, but he did, you know, like weepy. But, you know, my daughters and I, I think, especially my oldest daughter, we were, of course, crying and everybody got teary eyed. And I think um, when you see your children react that way, or even, or even think about their peers at school and what they're going through and try to, you know, um, so-and-so at school is acting out and he's causing a lot of trouble. So you hear about these school experiences. And so to be able to say, well, you know, we thought about he may be struggling with something and something's going on. And, and then they think about it and then, you know, hopefully, and, you know, they are a champion for that child or at least at the very least tolerant of some of the behaviors. Right, right. Understanding you're going through something. Yeah. Yeah. So let's go to the present. Like to <laughs> so now we kinda have an idea of who you are and what so what are you doing now? Well um uh, almost five years into um, running C4 Atlanta, you know, which is a, a we're an arts organization dedicated to arts entrepreneurship, um, and that's a, it's a very exciting time. It's also a very scary time um, when you start an organization. Uh, and Joe Winter, who's a co-founder, he and I had this conversation I think just yesterday. You know, when you when you start an organization, you don't have a whole lot to lose. You know, you're starting from zero, you're starting from scratch, everything is new, everything's exciting. You get to a certain point where you're continuing to go up, mm -hmm. you know, and grow and grow and grow, and then you have to think about these other issues that you didn't have to think about before. It's a longer way down. Longer way down, definitely. Um, you know, there's always the, the, you know, the nonprofit speak of things like capacity, you know, mm -hmm. and, and those are definitely things that you have to start thinking about. So, it, you know, it's, it's being able to manage all of that and think about, and, and continue to remain optimistic, which is hard sometimes, because when you're stuck in the here and now, um, you're not thinking about a, a vision five years down the road, so. Right. So let's, let's dive a little bit more, just so people can really understand what C4 does. Can you elaborate a little bit? Sure, yeah. Um, we started in 2010, and, um, one of our first classes that was started was called um, Entrepreneurship in the Arts, the Art of Self-Promotion. It's a very long title. Now it's called Ignite. Um, very similar content, but shortened. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's easier to like write copy for that. <laughs> it's the yeah. other one. <laughs> um, but that, that class was uh, created by Kamal Sinclair, who now works for Sundance. Oh, really? um, yeah, but uh, she has a performing arts background, I think was one of the original Tory members of Stomp, um, and went to Georgia State uh, to get her MBA. So she took a lot of that knowledge she uh, learned in, in a graduate program and condensed it to this you know, multi-week class on teaching artists how to create a business plan. Like an intensive? Yeah, yeah. It's like... Um, we had one consultant that was working with us. He was actually working on his MBA at the time. He, he called it the MBA light. You know? yeah. um, so a lot of the same concepts, I think, that you might run into an MBA, not as, not as deep, definitely not as deep um, at all. Uh, but 
but just understanding what are the different components of writing a business plan. And the idea behind that is when you when you can take really the same type of creative energies that you have towards your art or your creative offering, that's what we call it in the class, or creative offering, um, and you put that into a plan, then um, you receive clarity. Um, and so it, it's less about an exercise in, oh, you have to plan and, and go through this like rigid process and more about discovery um, right. and understanding, you know, there may be different ways of thinking about, for example, if you're a visual artist, you know, um, your canvas could be other things besides a traditional, yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, we talk a lot about that, you know, discovering your blue ocean, discovering that, that ocean that is not saturated and has full possibilities. So, so that was our first class. And, um, we were able to pilot that and offer it um, for free to several artists. And so, just, you know, doing that, that class over and over again, we got a lot of feedback. In fact, when we first started, it was a four-week class. Now it's an eight-week class. Okay. Because some of the feedback that we got, um, actually a lot of the feedback that we got over and over was it needs to be longer. You need more time. Oh, you need more. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So That's a good problem to have. It's a good problem to have. So, so now it's an eight-week course. Um, and then out of that, you, you kind of learn what are the other things that you're, in eight weeks that you're not really able to delve into. Uh, and some of that, you know, spun off into other classes. So we have a financial literacy class, a fundraising class. So those are just kind of one-off classes that dig a little bit deeper. Mm -hmm. We have a marketing class that's three weeks. And then uh, we had a program, or one of our longest running programs is a program called TechSmarts. And it's just a bi-monthly meetup um, that explores technology issues in the arts. It could be anywhere, anything from, you know, using Google AdWords to how do you spreadsheets, you know. Right. The um, basics that the, people don't really want to learn, but once they figure yeah. out, yeah, oh, no. yeah, yeah. Some of it's some of it's the basic stuff, and some of it we got it, we got into more compl complicated stuff, like looking at, for example, for um, performing arts organizations, CRMs, you know. Um, it's a, a CRM is like uh, a, what is that? CRM. Now I'm like, I'm going to forget the acronym, but I can explain what it is. It's it's basically like a record keeping system, a database for um, for patrons. Oh. So when somebody comes in and they purchase a ticket, for example, at the Alliance Theater, then the Alliance Theater would you know track whether that person's also a donor or whether that person has gone to different shows or multiple shows. And the idea behind it is that there's a, a customer service element that you can bring back to the experience because you know who this person is, or not just somebody passing through your door. Right. So you're building kind of a profile around yeah, analytics of what's going on. Yes. Well, very, yeah, well, analytics, data-driven. Um, and so we just explored the different systems that were out there, and which have changed tremendously over the last five years, you know. Yeah. That's insane. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so out of that, out of TechSmarts, I mean, we asked people, what, what else do you want to learn technology-wise? And we got a lot of feedback when people wanted to learn about how to build a website. So we were like, well, you can't really do that in a in a meetup session. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? teaching like Squarespace or something. Yeah, but not yeah, but not from scratch. Yeah, so like a WordPress. <laughs> yeah, right. So that so Joe, um, again, my colleague, he 
he put together the curriculum for a three-week uh, website boot camp class. So, yeah, so that's, we do a lot of different things. We also run a um, co-creation space downtown. Um, we, we deliberately chose downtown. We love downtown. Um, there's a lot of energy right now in downtown. And, um, you know, projects that uh, Dashboard Co-op has brought downtown, Elevate. And this is downtown Atlanta, just in case anyone's lost. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry, yes, yes, the ATL. Um, <laughs> Me too. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it, um, it's, you know, it, it's a, we love being downtown and the neighborhood is very supportive of arts happenings. I think the challenge is people still have a, the stigma associated with downtown, you know, like right. crime and um, homelessness. Homelessness, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so how do you see that? Sorry, that's my fault. <laughs> how do you see that changing, or do you see it changing? I do see it changing. I think um, there's a again, you know, we're at this moment where it's like it could change for the best. Or it could change for the best and then become the worst. <laughs> yep. <You know? laughs> so I think um, I think you know for us as an organization, our challenge is really to tap in more to the networks that are, are that already exist downtown. You know, the neighborhood associations, the people who live here, uh, the people who worship here, the people who um, work downtown, and uh, we don't always have the capacity to to reach out in the way that we want to. Um, but we're trying. We're trying to build programs around that that would help um, even our artists learn how to do um, a civic engagement projects that would uh, that have a more organic uh, ripple effect within the community around the arts. So I think we have to. Um, the city of Atlanta, I think, maybe just under New York City, has uh, one of the highest income gaps in the United States. Not surprising. Yeah, so you have, um, I mean, it's an issue. It's an issue that we have to address. So we can take all these progressive steps towards transportation, towards um, community development, or, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, and, and these are great things, don't get me wrong, like the Pond City Market, the Atlanta Bell Line, all of those things are fantastic projects. But I think also, um, as we continue to see the possibilities around um, those developments, we also need to take another look and say, how do they how do they affect everyone within the community, and how are we closing the gap mm -hmm. with what it is that we're doing, and instead of contributing to something in, in unintentionally that would uh... see, I silenced my phones. Well, I sent the water <laughs> for the parking. And oh, I want to make sure I don't. Do you need to go? Do you need to go pay? No, that's a text message. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> um, anyway, I'm sorry. What was it? Um, we need to do more better. <laughs> do more better. Yeah, agreed. Oh, because yeah. we were talking about the belt line. And yeah, yeah. And again, just to reiterate, those are I know people who work on those projects, and and it's not. Uh, those are those are just some examples of development that's happening, not necessarily development that is, uh, you know, nefarious and yeah, intent. no, they're great yeah. projects. We right. just need larger scale things yeah. or more specific things, maybe. I don't, how would yeah, you that? I would. I think there. 
There needs to be um, real intentionality behind um, understanding the community. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I would say, you know, those projects I know have gone through, um, oh, you know, a lot with consultants and city planners and things like that. But there have been some projects um, that haven't worked. Um, or have it worked, but then people have learned from those mis mistakes and now are moving towards that. And I think art is one of those that, um, you know, if you're working in a community and you want to go and, and save a community, um, that might be well intended, but that can also be a very harmful mindset. So, um, so are there any examples of that? I don't. I, it's hard to feel comfortable with doing Atlanta examples, I think. Right. But I, I think um, an example of what really works in another city um, is the uh, Philly Mural Project. So um, what's that? So it started out like years ago as a campaign to end um, spray paint graffiti. And the way, and I, you know, again, I'm probably butchering the story, but. Um, one of the ways in which that was um, accomplished was not by keeping street artists out of the picture, it was by including them. Because um, a lot of the people that worked in the program realized that um, the, the street artists um, were very skilled. Um, and Yes, and, and may not have had some of the formal training, or the formal training they were getting was on their own. They were going to the library and they were studying these you know, you know, works of art on their own and incorporating some of that into their own work. Um, and you know, now, you know, they, I'm sure that the, the, the program didn't run into, um, or did run into some problems. And one example might be uh, if you go into a community and you decide to put up a mural, but you haven't talked to the community about what type of mural would represent the community best. Right. That can become an issue because um, yeah, creating tension because they right. don't agree with what you put up. Or whatever. Right, and I think if you're receiving public funds to go and do that work in a community, you need to include the public. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a lot of issues around freedom of speech and things like that that can that uh, you know um, I'm very sensitive to, but I think that it, it comes down to. Really, um, you can do great work with being informed by a community, mm -hmm. and so um, I don't think involving a community compromises artistic integrity. I think, if anything, you now have allies and supporters that will protect your work. Right, and that has been the case with the mural project. So a lot of them are, when they go in and decide to do a mural, there's a lot that goes into that, and and talking to the community, including the community. Um, and, uh, and what you find is that, so if you go into a, a vacant lot and you have you know, this lot um, with trash and stuff in it, but you put up a mural in an adjacent building and you've included the community, well the community takes care of it. They make sure that the area in front of the mural isn't trashed. You know, so I think it, it um, I think that there's efforts in, in this city to to work towards that. But I think as far as um, a lot of the projects that we have, we're still in our infancy. So yes, we have a lot of, of walls painted, which is great. It's done, has brought a lot of attention to Atlanta. It's done a lot of amazing things for the city. 
I think going back and learning from other cities, there's nothing wrong with that. I think understanding okay. intentionality. Um, Michael Road, who is um, he's a theater artist, and uh, but does um, you know civic engagement projects in the community. One of the things that he says is that you know we never go in thinking that we're giving a community a voice. They already have a voice, mm -hmm. so we're just listening, you know, to their voice they already have. Definitely. So I can dig that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so. That's a great program in Philly. Mm -hmm. I, I think it'd be kind of cool to have a mix of that kind of setup, and then also what we have in Land and the Crom Street Tunnel. Like, it just is where people go. Yeah. As long as there are dedicated places like that. Yeah. That gives people an ability to hone the craft. You can always, like, weekend over to the month and then start fresh. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know, I don't know how the Crom Street, that, that particular uh, tunnel works. I think it's owned by the railroad company. Yeah. So, so definitely, like if there are private um, companies that you know, you get into some tricky things. Like you know, you don't want it to be um, all of a sudden uh, an advertisement for a company, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, and that's and that's you know, you've got again in Philly, you've got private companies that are commissioning work, mm -hmm. and so there's this really fine line on, on the books legally what yeah. constitutes an advertisement. And what constitutes art, right. you know? So because you don't want McDonald's. Yeah, yeah. Or brought to you by Pfizer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, which they've you know sponsored projects in Philly before, but they're not allowed to put their name on it. Interesting. So that's part of the agreement. So it's kind of like live and learn. You know, Crock Street is awesome. I would love to see more tunnels like that. You know, the one over there on Moreland and. Um, and and I think Living Walls painted one, and this was they're so beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Living walls? Yeah. Yeah. I live at 17th and West Beach Street, and there's a building right on the corner, and they did like a little side of the parking deck. It's like this huge person kind of running down with little flowers coming out of the pipes coming inside. It's, it's awesome. Living walls is great, and they've done they've done a lot for, um, you know, recognizing street art in Atlanta and, um, and making it something that is uh, um, well done. Well, yeah, well done, and, um, and and I mean, it just it just adds to the vibrancy of the city, Absolutely. you know, definitely. Um, Are you familiar with the silhouette up off Peachtree? The way West Peachtree and Peachtree come together? Maybe. What, what is it? It's over by the scattery. There's, there's yeah. a side of the building that's got a huge silhouette of a man. It goes all the way up, and you can see it, like, from that side. Oh, like station. I have to look for it. Like, yeah, you just be like, oh, hey. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. I, I don't even know if that was like a project that was just part of the building or what, but it looks awesome. Yeah. I love more stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think even, um, you know, companies are looking in, you know, for construction. Uh, maybe, and I think a lot of them do. I don't know that it's a legal requirement in, in Georgia. Um, or even in the city to save a percent for art. I think in other cities it might be like San Francisco. Um, but so Kansas City does that. Yeah. But I'm not a fan of forced art like that because to me what happened, like some of them, the structure, most of it's like metal structures and stuff. Yeah. And some of them are beautiful and some of them I'm like, just did this yeah, to do it. To do it, yeah. It you know, in Boston they have a program, um, and it, it, I think it's run to the, um, 
Arts and Business Council, Greater Boston, mm -hmm. and it's a um, like a loan art project. So the artists get paid, and their art goes to corporate offices, and it's rotated through. Okay. So corporate offices, you know, um, not wanting to uh, basically store art and mm -hmm. and keep art, you know. Uh, there are, there are, you know, Coca-Cola, for example, I think has their own art curator. The CBC has its own um, museum or gallery. Um, but I think from, you know, from some corporate offices, I think the idea of, of owning art isn't really that appealing, you know, as an asset. Um, so having a loan program where um, artists get paid for creating work or, or get basically like a residual or a rental fee, yeah, you know, yeah. for their artwork is, is pretty cool. It seems to be very popular in Boston. So we may have something similar to that in Atlanta. I, I don't know for sure. I don't know if we would run it or I do know that Wonder Root has the CSA, you know, the community supported art, which is pretty cool. Okay. What's Wonder Root? So Wonder Root um, is another art service organization. Um, their mission is um, more focused on um, art as a positive change for social justice, maybe I'm getting the mission wrong, okay. um, but, but more social justice, more community engagement. Okay. Um, so they have a, uh, actually they have had for several years um, off of Memorial, uh, an art center and a small, it's like a small house, and but it's got like a recording studio and all the stuff, you pay like a membership mm -hmm. and you can use the facilities. Um, but they just um, signed a lease with this uh, city of Atlanta for a school building that isn't in use anymore, mm. right across the street. Um, and I think it's 55,000 square feet, you know, so they're going to have artist studios and performance. Yeah. Ooh. It's a big deal. Yeah. That's so, huge. So, yeah, that's going to be really great for artists. Um, you know, affordable workspace. Uh, Definitely. You know, in, in addition to the goat farm. Um, yeah, I was going to say, I love the goat yeah. farm, but it's only so big. Yeah. And most of it's already done. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, you know, they're ready to, it, it's a, they have that good problem of capacity, right? Mm -hmm. But, um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, both, both have a different structure, and for their particular community, it seems to work really well. Mm -hmm. So, um, It'll be, you know, they haven't moved into the space yet, but um, I think that they have already, you know, most of at least out, or a good chunk of at least out to artists who are already, you know, interested in being in the space. So, good deal. Yeah, it's good stuff for Atlanta. Yeah, well, especially if they're already filling up, like, that's a good sign. Yeah, it is a good sign. I like that. Um, okay, so I'm assuming arts, but uh, let's kind of scoot into what. What issues are impacting your life or important in the, in the city or in the world, whatever, whatever is most important? Um, tell you things that are the most recent. <laughs> um, definitely art, and, and definitely, um, I think a big influence of mine over the last year has been a book called um, Building Communities, Not Audiences. The, I think the extended titles The Future Art in the United States. Um, it's, it 
It's about a lot of things. Um, <laughs> but the author is um, Doug Borick, and he also has other contributors from part of the arts um, critic field or um, just other amazing people who are doing some great research uh, and scholarship in the arts. But essentially, you know, he, he dives into really understanding where our current art structure came from. You know, very Western, very much this uh, um, patron artist model, and uh, and how essentially it's that's going away. You know, and that community engagement, community-based art, is sort of the future of art in the United States. And um, there's so just sure to try to explain in case anyone's unaware the the patron artist dynamic. Yeah, how's that work? Um, well, you know, I, I think we always, we know the examples of like um, famous painters that had the patron, you know, back in uh, the Renaissance or you know pre post Renaissance that right. had the patron so like commissioned art. It's like whether it was the church or something. Right, or something. right, or a monarch or wealthy uh, someone from the bourgeois. Bourgeois. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's that's kind of a traditional model, but I think you know if you if you translate that into a more modern context, it's still very much a, uh, and not to say that they don't have a place within the arts field, but very much like the gallery sort of artist yeah, okay. artist relationship, um, and and I think in that respect the gallery is kind of the middle the middleman because you do have that person purchasing through the gallery, but mm -hmm. it's uh, it's works of art that are, are created. Um, for something specific like um, another person or a commission or the city or um, I mean you get the idea yeah, yeah. And so it's I, I would even argue and I mean this is I'm not trying to be like radical but but I would even argue that as as the, the you know looking into the myth of the starving artist that if you are are supporting yourself as an artist through another job when you're creating art, you're not able to find a way to sell that art. In, in some ways, you've become your own patron <laughs> of your work. Um, and and it's, a, it's a tough dynamic to break out of. Yeah. So I think, um, I, so the other piece of that is um, museums and, um, and, and even larger cultural institutions. We've seen it happen several times in the last year. Uh, all across the United States are are going away. You know, they're declaring bankruptcy, or their patronage is down. Mm -hmm. um, and I and you know, so I think right before we went on, we talked a little bit about how you know access to equipment that helps making your art um, get out there online or digital, you know, digitized or whatever. I mean, we, yeah, we live in a great age for that. So. Um, as that happens, there's more and more people that are um, not just doing art, but interested in art in a different way that we've defined it. You know, right. uh, they're not necessarily going to a museum, but they're going to go to a local festival. They're going to see dance in the street. They're going to see, you know, buskers in New York. Or, or on YouTube. Or on YouTube, yeah, and that's how they're consuming art. Um, in fact, uh, I think the, it was the National Endowment for the Arts uh, conducted a study Double check that. It may, it may have been Americans for the Arts. Um, I think it was Americans for the Arts. But there was a study. 
my brain. There was a study. There was a study. Uh, yeah. Um, where they asked, you know, in, in a survey, people in the United States, like, how often did you participate in an art event um, over the last, I think, you know, maybe year or two? And they gave very specific definitions of art, you know, performing mm -hmm. arts, you know, museum, gallery, um, you know, whatever. The traditional. The traditional, arts. yeah, the traditional way of, of we, when we think of arts and culture. Mm -hmm. And I think it came back like one fourth of the United States, you know, actually, actually participated, you know, in some type of cultural event. Um, when they, they no, I don't know that they did. I don't think that they did because they redefined that and they they added in internet content and and I think film was one of the additions. And then it came back three fourths of the American population were participating in some art, it's just you know. Different. It's just different. Yeah, the definition was broader. So um, I think with that in mind, you know, um, going in, you know, there, there's some really great museums, there's some really great exhibits in Atlanta, and I think, you know, some of the museums that we have in Atlanta, the, the, um, the Center for um, uh, Civil and Human Rights is, I think, a great example of, of really bringing people into a building but giving them a, a multi-dimensional experience. You know, um, but I think the traditional I'm going to go and stand in front of a painting may or may not have any context for it is um, is is dying. You know, certainly. Yeah, it's so interesting. I was just listening to an interview by a musician called Chris Theory. He uh he's with them with a band uh, called Nego Creek since he was like six. Mm -hmm. But uh, but anyway, brilliant mandolin player, and uh, he was talking about how. When you go to a, uh, a concert and hear, you know, classical music on the radio, everyone's so reserved. It's the audience, not the performers that are so reserved. Right. And he was at a concert and he watched somebody play something and he just like nailed it. He's like, ah. yeah. And everyone's like, shh. <laughs> and they were so much louder than he was and not paying attention when they were doing that. And he's like, how is it that you can go to a Radiohead concert, which is just as intense, and like when they nail it, they nail right, it. Right. But everyone's like, yeah, yeah. enjoying yeah. it. And then there's like this, I don't know, this yeah. weird thing that happens. It's, I think there may be a name for that. I think it's called threshold syndrome. Okay. And so it's it's actually when you walk into a building like a museum or maybe even a symphony hall, that there's a certain um, decorum. Um, that has to be in place, and um, a certain way to behave, a certain way to dress, a certain, you know, um, and for um, people, um, particularly people in disadvantaged communities who have not had arts education or access to art, mm -hmm. that can be a very intimidating... Um, or off-putting. Off-putting, yeah. yeah. I think, I mean, even for a lot of people, it can be off-putting. Um, but, uh, so yeah, it, it's this idea that, you know, the four walls of, of a building can be one of the greatest deterrents to that access. So you can make it free all day long, right. but actually walking into that building, there's some hesitation there. Um, so more people are wanting to participate in art that's in their community. Um, and I don't mean uh, in urban communities, I mean in rural communities. I mean, you know, Salt and is a great example of, of um, they 
you know, there's a production, I think that was very much involved with the community called Swamp Gravy. And it's those Swamp Gravy? Yeah. That's a cool name. Yeah. Swamp Gravy. But it's, I mean, it, you know, it, it's good work and it's, it's work that has united a community. And um, so, you know, there's been this, I think, this sort of tension between what we consider high art and what we consider low art, you know, and, and high art being, again, more of that patron, um, patron artist model, um, and low art being things that are maybe um, like a folk artist or right, people who are self Yeah. Um, and I think that, that what, what Doug Warwick, I think, argues or at least presents in um, building communities, not audiences, is that that's a, it's a no longer relative argument, right? Um, because it's not really about the art all the time. It's sometimes it's about the experience. Mm -hmm. And so he breaks it into um, visceral art, um, not verses, but exists on its own plane, and then there's reflective art. And so... Um, it's like the time, so when you are looking at a painting, seeing what it inspires you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, and I think, you know, it, it's, um, you may, you know, if you are, um, for example, you know, first generation, immigrant in the United States and you're going over to a museum, you may not have context for uh, a very Western um, display of, you know, right, yeah, I, I mean, you may appreciate it and maybe like that's beautiful and the colors are amazing and the strokes, you can see the strokes in the artwork, but we've been removed a little bit from the context, you know. Right. So. Uh, but whereas visceral art is really about this, this sort of experience, this thing that, that's, you know, uh, taps into more senses, it's, it's an experience rather than just a very passive observation of art. And, and so it, it, it's not a value judgment. It's not saying one's better than the other. It's just saying it's different. And just looking at trends, the United States tends to be going more towards wanting and seeking out visceral art. And so if we're not providing those experiences, then obviously we're going to see our patronage shrink. Of course, because yeah. patrons want to see the art that they want to see. The right, yeah. And there's a whole there's a whole lot in that book about shifting demographics and, uh, you know, in, uh, in the United States. So it's, it's very meaty. Um, but that's been an influence of mine thinking about as a service organization that thinks about arts entrepreneurship, how does that affect us? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, why? Why should I care? And Definitely. so just kind of grappling and answering those questions from within uh, has been a task of mine, I think. For sure. But it's so interesting when I think about art, how it can be like, so back in the Renaissance, whatever, there weren't cameras, and so the artist was if it was a painting, whatever they're drawing a person to realistic things. And then the camera came along, alleviating that responsibility from the artist and allowing just anything, right? Whatever. And in the same way, I think if we figure out a way to use art to make uh, sustaining ourselves beautiful, whether it's you know, from culture or whatever, right. 
find that medium, then everyone will have everything they need and they can spend time doing whatever work they want without having to worry about getting right. work that yeah. they want. Yeah, I mean, a big conversation that's been happening uh, in, in the arts, um, there was an article in HowlRound Theater uh, uh, blog, I think it's a blog, um, but it, they all, HowlRound um, is specifically for theater, and, and then what they do is have um, articles about social change, social justice, and so forth. And one of them was about um, this, oh, gosh, I'm going to lose my thought here. Um, it was this idea of, <laughs> it was called The Matrix. Uh, I just lost my thought, but um, God, what was that about? It was really uh, yeah, um, like how how <laughs> round. Yeah, <laughs> um, I'm I'm trying to think of what this article is about, but at any rate, um, you know. Um, oh yes, it was about. This sort of this idea of scarcity versus abundance, mm -hmm. and um, you know we always you know economics is based on this idea of scarcity, and one of the I think the question is what if we just tipped that a little bit and thought about what we have as artists, what we have as arts organizations, as a community that are abundance assets. So you know one of the things that we have within in our space here. Is space. <laughs> okay. So, well, yeah. So, what can you do with that space? And um, you know, we do have to earn money from the space, but um, but we can also open it up to community events, community um, things like you know, neighborhood association meetings, gatherings, things like that that are non-commercial in nature, um, but we're not charging them to be in the space. Right. Um, because uh, because it's an asset that we have, and uh, we want that asset to be a part of the community. So thinking about you know what are those things, even as an individual artist, what are those assets that you have that instead of thinking about currency, um, you think about uh, sharing abundance um, versus working against each other yeah, in, yeah. in the spirit of scarcity. <laughs> Why are we competing rather than working? Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. <laughs> Uh, are there any other things you want to talk about as far as issues impacting beyond the arts or beyond? Well, yeah, I've been thinking a lot about GMOs, so. <laughs> okay. You know that. What, uh, what about? Um, What's your take? My take? I don't have a take. I, I have a, um, right now I'm in, in investigation mode. <laughs> Um, because I think that you know, genetically modified organism, it's like, that's what tomatoes are. You know, I mean, they're not an indigenous, indigenous fruit to the United States, but yet we've cultivated the soil for years, same as we've done with, with corn and others to get it to where it is now. You know, it may not have been engineered by a large um, company like Monsanto, but, um, but we, we've, you know, even in, in some of the works of Shakespeare, there's this, there's these kind of arguments which um, express the, the, the sort of political tensions of the day, which was, um, you know, this idea of landscaping, you know, landscaping versus just letting nature 
be you nature. know, be nature, mm -hmm. um, and that was a, that was kind of a, that that GMO topic <laughs> of their time, or even cloning topic, you know. Yeah. And going back, I think, or, you know, the late nineties, we were talking about cloning as as this, or you know, messing with nature, and is it right, and was it ethical, and what are the the other uh, possible repercussions for humanity? So not necessarily cloning plants, but cloning people or animals yeah yeah um, so I think you know I want to be conscious of the things that I put in my body and and for my children as well but it's interesting so you know reading about uh, and I think nobody would argue that you know Big industry has hidden information before me. Some of the tobacco companies. Wow. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The meatpacking industry. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sinclair. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, so I mean, it, you know, there's definitely a reason for us to be skeptical of, of a, a system that isn't checked. Yeah, right? totally. I don't, people confuse me because they, they know that's a thing, just like we know it is with politics and every other large organization right. of any kind. It's impossible to share everything, or it was before, right. pre-internet. So the idea that you're just going to trust what they say, I mean, I'm all for offering anyone the opportunity to make their case. Like, I'll listen, right? right? right. But if you fucked up in the past, then I want to know. <laughs> are you yeah. still doing that? Yeah, you're still that? doing that. No? Yeah, yeah. I think what I, I tried to look at, or have been looking at, and haven't really been like thoroughly uh, investigating this, um, but just over the Thanksgiving break started looking into um, what's happening with wheat and, uh, and other um, products. Um, and I think what I, when I started just kind of doing a Google search and starting somewhere it kind of takes you down the rabbit hole. And I thought, you know, it'd be really interesting to see what your farmers say. Mm -hmm. You know, why do they purchase these seeds, you know, uh, from Monsanto that has the, the, not only the plant seed in it, but the insecticide, and the fertilizer, all of that built in. And there was a really interesting argument, I think, where, um, you know, one person blogging about it was saying that, yes, the seeds are expensive, and yes, there's some weird, you know, legal things about patent when you can't use the same seeds in the next crop, the next cycle. Um, but the money that they save in only having to run a tractor across the field, you know, once versus three times is immense. And there's less shipping of those gases to the farmers and um, less time. And one farmer said that it keeps actually just by planting a seed and having it all in one, it keeps his field workers um, uh, and his employees working in the field from being exposed to the spray that they would normally have to use. Um, so it was it was an interesting take on that. It was an interesting take on why a farmer would um, yeah. still still a relatively uneducated view on it, but I, <laughs> I understand the perspective. Why do you say uneducated? <clears throat> um, well, for one, that pesticide that's now permanently in the seed right. is the reason the bees are dying. Right. Part of it, they figured that out in France in the nineties. Right. Invented. Yeah. Um, on top of that, the, by having genetically modified seeds like that, they spread through pollination, going to other farmers. Right. And those farmers get sued. Right. And because they. Yeah. I. Yeah. I remember that. That. That's like really creepy. Yeah. <laughs> but that definitely is one benefit. That yeah. is legitimate. Like, yeah, there's less work because of that. But yeah. of course, monocropping like that 
and it's completely inefficient anyway. So yeah, I mean, I think like for some of the for some of the farmers that we're talking about this, I mean, you know, you're talking about somebody's worked the land since they were you know able to walk, you know, generations of farming, and so there is a lot of science that goes into farming, and so I I don't want to discount that voice. Um, and you know, some of them talked about rotating crops, doing crop rotation and stuff like that. So they are, it, I don't think, you know, from one farmer's perspective is it doesn't do them any good to create crappy products, oh, absolutely. you know, but I think it, it's something to definitely keep thinking about. And I, I think even just from a health perspective, cutting back on carbs. <laughs> It's not, on carbs. Yeah, uh, you know, it's not a depending on the, the type of carb that you're eating. You know, it's uh, you know, I lost uh, ten pounds, uh, I think, in in changing my diet. I, I did put in exercise, but I have been exercising, and when I started looking at my diet and making change in diets, that's actually when the weight started coming off a lot faster. And it wasn't that I, I don't believe in any diet. I think where they make you cut out everything. You know, I'm willing like you're not yeah. willing to do that. Um, I, I still eat pasta, but I think like it's it's really small choices about like um, going out to eat and they bring you a basket of bread and it's like do you really need that basket of bread before you eat this other meal, you know, or can you opt for a salad or you know some other choice besides you know carbs? So yeah. I'm not an Atkins fanatic, right. <laughs> yeah, um, but I. Yeah, and also I think, you know, I love beer, so cutting back on beer, I think. <laughs> yeah. I like a good beer. You know, have you tried kombucha? Mm -hmm. It's like a fermented tea, but um, it's got, uh, because it's fermented, it's good for your gut bacteria. Right, yeah. But the nice thing about it for me is that it, uh, different flavors can, because it's bubbly and fermented, it tastes a little bit like beer. So sometimes oh, it's like okay. a little, yeah. something I'll take. Like, oh my goodness. Yeah, yeah. I mean, those substitutes, right? Mine was, mine was like, you know, soda water, you know, mm -hmm. just having something that, something to drink. Yeah. So, so yeah, the, the GMO thing is, it's still looking at it, it's still looking for a different perspectives. And, um, and it, you know, I, I, I haven't really gone in with one or the other. I just like to see, like, and think about, you know, what are the arguments, and and uh, and if there's something that I strongly agree with or disagree with, how does that affect my life? Mm -hmm. And what do I do about that? Definitely. You know, maybe it's just making a change in diet or where I decide to uh, purchase wheat products. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's so much information out there; it's hard to really sift through it. Be able to look yourself in the eye and say, "I know what I'm talking about." Yeah, There's no, just too yeah, much. no, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think that's even. I, I think the thing about uh, research and, and even uh, um, you know a hypothesis or a theory. I mean, it, you know, the idea behind science is that I don't think any scientist would say yes 100 percent we're we're right. We know for a fact. Right. You know, they all they can do is look at causation. <laughs> You know, and, and even that's really hard, you know, so well, correlation. Think, yeah, all they can really say is that of the information we have, this is our best case. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I mean, I know a lot of people that just think that they know what they're talking about. 
And yeah. They figured out some clever thing because of the way it was articulated in the article. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, like, right. it's the kind of idea where it's cold yeah. here, so global warming must not exist. Clearly. <laughs> Clearly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but hey, I mean, we all have different perspectives and whatever, so I try and just, like, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Let's try and work together. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Choose your battles. Yeah. <laughs> One thing in your research I would uh, check out is, have you heard of permaculture? I have, but yeah. I, I'm not, I don't seem to be as familiar with it as I would like to be. So, uh, just a little overview, permaculture is a design science. It's, uh, mm -hmm. They take systems in nature, figure out how it works, and then try and design systems that have the least amount of input from humans and are the most productive for both ourselves, the soil, the animals, Yeah, everything. yeah, okay. And it's you can grow six thousand pounds of fruits and vegetables a year on a quarter acre in like Pasadena, California, with minimal input. You just and treat the soil, right? <laughs> yeah, acknowledge that it has bacteria, it yeah. has those things you need mycelium. Yeah, but it can be very simple too. And yeah, it's it's fascinating what we can do. They went to Jordan and they turned this desert into all sorts of fruit and plants. And the soil is desalinated. And it's just right. it's beautiful. Yeah. It's not hard, it's just thinking about something. Right, yeah. But yeah. Thinking about what we're doing and being profitable sometimes or not, but. Well, even so, if you're minimizing yeah. your input, then. That's true, hard. yeah. So, I guess the, the status quo is hard to change, that's for sure. Yeah, well, I think the real problem is that farmers that have gotten up to scale have invested in an infrastructure that they're currently coming right. with. Yeah. Changing from that after you've invested is what is, people yeah, want to do. Yeah. Even if it's, it's the best choice. Yeah. 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 I, I definitely am familiar with that. My grandfather has a cattle ranch in Kansas. And so growing up, I was like, oh, this is awesome. And then I realized that's not how all farms are. <laughs> <laughs> and then I realized not only can it be worse, like factory farming, but it can be so much better. Like some of these, right. there's a farmer named Joel Salatin, or I'll say something Salatin. Pretty sure it's Joe Salatin. Something. But anyway. Um, he has a farm called Polyface Farms, and they do such efficient things. He can take, uh, I think it's like 10 acres, however much of just like scrub land, like completely yeah. overgrown, grow pigs and net 60k a year with minimal effort, wow. just by doing it correctly. Yeah. It's just, it blew my mind. Because you see my grandfather's farm, and like, I run out of cattle on horseback. Yeah. <laughs> so I see really this is like, this is so simple, and it works, and it's good for everything. Yeah, we're not doing this. I don't understand. Yeah. Maybe you have a life ahead of you in farming. <laughs> you think so? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. My my only really, you know, I, I plant a couple of things a year. Last, you know, I used to do tomatoes a lot, but I think year round we just take care of a couple of hens. And they're excellent uh, garbage disposals. They are actually. We throw yeah. a lot out there too. That's all you know, healthy stuff. But they like. Watermelon rinds are thrown out there, and just like you know, uh, food and stuff like that. that uh, I gave them some vegetables from like a stew beef that we had, and mm -hmm. uh, they love it. Keep some, they, they get bored too, so we'll throw like a bale of hay out there and just let them like take it apart. Like, <laughs> totally, just for fun, just for fun, yeah, just to keep them happy. We kind of <laughs> like they're happy, and then you know, they'll leave great eggs. <laughs> But they are amazing eggs, so good. Birds fascinate me too, because their eyes can see electromagnetic activity. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. So 
like you wonder how birds can find their way if they're only migrating. It's because they can see. Yeah, yeah, they see the patterns of the things that exist. Yeah, in the atmosphere. Yeah, it, it's a you know my my fascination is I think dogs like what you know what they know. I mean we're not necessarily discounted for a long time, but just kind of thought of as like you know not a really smart animal. And now there's so much research about. Um, how they communicate with us and with each other and how yeah. they've learned, you know, everything about humans. It's just amazing. Yeah, they haven't cult we haven't cultivated them, they've cultivated us. Yes. They're like, oh, yeah. you'll do all the work? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think somebody said that, you know, um, it, it just the, the tipping point, I think, between what became the wolf and then the, the, the middle for the what is now the domestic dog, you know, just this observation of I can come back and get food and it's like that that trade or whatever it is it's like we have an over we have too many dogs you know too many dogs that don't have homes and yet wolves are you know on verge of extinction um, for some species so yeah well and, and the crazy part is because we bred out all of that fear of humans in places not the US like say Russia they're forming, stray dogs are forming these packs and they have no fear of humans. They're oh, totally right. attacking them yeah. like crazy. Yeah. It's like, whoa, <laughs> yeah. we should pay attention Super to the dogs. Yeah. But that's where boars came from too. They're like, Europeans brought pigs and then they let them loose because oh. there was no way to fence them in before. Pigs gone wild. Well, that's like wild horses too. Like, mm -hmm. right? I mean, We're the reason it, the Mustangs are here. Yeah. They totally cleared out the plane before Europeans even made it there. So we yeah. have no idea what it looked like before. It's yeah. crazy. <laughs> I have horses. Well, my my in laws have horses, and they have like a horse that I ride. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's an experience, though. It is. It Writing is. something with the mind of its own. Like, yeah, it is. It's different. Like when you know, um, I didn't have like riding lessons. My father in law got some horses and was like, "Get up on the horse." <laughs> like, oh, okay, uh, yeah, on the horse. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I did try to take some riding lessons. Um, and, uh, you know, it was like uh, they were teaching a very, like, English style, you know, dressage, okay. and, uh, which is fine. I mean, some of the basics, the basics in acclimating yourself to being on an animal and, mm -hmm. um, and just being comfortable with that is really important when you're writing it. But uh, it was kind of funny because, you know, I was in my 30s and I'm like in classes with, uh, you know, 12 and you know, 12 to 16 year olds who know how to do it so much better than I. Um, so yeah, it is definitely an experience. It's, that whole world, horses and it's, people get really into it because you can, just the idea of becoming in tune with another living creature that you're yeah. is an experience in itself. Yeah. Yeah, there's a book called Centered Writing that's kind of about that. It was written from, oh, yeah. um, she was diagnosed with scoliosis, and this was the it was the one sport you know writing that made you use both sides of the body equally at the same time. So oh, so it helped balance it out. Helped balance out. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. Uh, I can dig that. Yeah. It's and but she uh, uses a lot of like kind of Eastern philosophies in talking about learning to ride. You know. Um, Using soft eyes instead of hard eyes, and breathing, and and basically centered on an animal, so you do become one with them. So the subtlest, the subtle movements that you have in the body cue them, 
in different ways. It's, mm-hmm. it's pretty amazing. That, the horses that we ride are not, they're not trained for that. They know some, right. you know, slow down and don't run into that tree. But you develop the language between them. Yeah, the yeah. I don't ride enough to develop that. I, it's a regret of mine, but um, one day, <laughs> one day. I have this experience I had when I was little where, <laughs> uh, so, my grandfather, I only got to go there in the summers, so when I went, uh, he had this one horse that used to be a, a barrel racing horse. Oh yeah, so it's very horse, much, right? So, a horse? Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. Kind of a big horse, yeah. Um, well, it was a little bit shorter than most of the other ones. Oh, okay, okay. But, uh, but it was designed like it had been bred to full speed, full speed, full speed. Right, right, yeah. And I had never galloped before, like the most I'd ever done was a little bit of trotting, but it was mostly walking because I was still new at it. Yeah. And um, there's like this little place where you could, in Kansas, everything's grid. There's right. like one paved road and a bunch of uh, gravel roads. Right. Came off the gravel road, went up the paved park to get to this place. And the horse just like took off and ran. And I was terrified. I'd never gone that fast. So I was like squeezing harder and harder, which made him go faster. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was weird because he actually pulled me through that fear of going faster yeah. than I thought I was. Yeah. And I was comfortable running up to that. I think it, and the interesting thing is, um, the thing that you have to keep in mind when you decide they want to run is that they spread. <laughs> so you're not going to run forever. Just keep your head down. <laughs> <laughs> They're not going to run into anything that's going to hurt them. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. if you keep at the same level as them. They're going to be good. They're going to be good. You just hold on for your life. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, so let's let's scoot to uh, Future. Future is one of my favorite parts. This is where we get to look at what could be. Um, so let's start with what do you think the next five years are going to look like? Just from what you've seen. Uh, well, I mean, I think that's going to be, so I'll, I'll kind of start pick. I mean, I think in the United States, you know, we'll definitely have, um, in, in, as far as art, I want to focus on art. Um, you know, there'll be some challenges with funding. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think kind of moving in locally, um, I think that um, despite those challenges, I, I think we've, we've hit a, a point of resurgence in, in, in art and, and different modes of um, not just creation, but distributing our art, mm-hmm. you know, um, and I think that will just continue to accelerate, um, hopefully if we build the right infrastructure now. You know, so I For think sure. that's the challenge that we have right now to support the next five years. For C4 Atlanta, I mean, you know, the next five years, I think, is a very, you, you get to that five point, that five year mark, and we're coming up on that for us. And it's like, well, this is very critical. It's mm-hmm. critical to make it five years. And then it's like, okay, well, the next five years are also really critical, you yeah, know, in terms of growth. Yeah. Right. And the acceleration in terms of what programs you're creating may slow down. But now, I think we've created as many programs as we could possibly create the staff that we have. So now it's like, how do we round it out a little bit, you know? Um, And I think for, you know, is that your? That is my parking, yeah. So, all right, be right back. (laughs) All right, parking, check. So uh, let's just finish up what you think the next five years should, or what you want to see us focus on in the next five years. Okay. Um, 
I think as an arts community, for the next five years, uh, focusing more on um, organic and genuine engagement, I think it's going to be really important. I think uh, training is going to be important um, for artists. Uh, not, not. I mean, you know, obviously, BMC Portland is a big proponent of empowering artists with entrepreneurial training. But I think also there's uh, specific skill sets that um, need to continue to be offered, you know, for um, for artists to continue to hone their aesthetic, mm -hmm. um, uh, creative as part of their creative offering, you know, um, and just some other just basic skills, you know. Um, I read an article recently about the the top. I think it was like the top five skills needed in Georgia right now because of the you know the um, because of the, the sort of robust film industry that we have, you know, um, yeah, really yeah and, uh, and but unfortunately, some of the skills are not here in Georgia, and the film companies want to hire Georgians to do that work, but they're having to uh, bring in people from California or other states to do that work. So you know, things like that, like having a very um, you know, I think even at the university level, at the community service organization level, like C4, you know, thinking about what artists and people in the creative fields really need so that they can earn a living making art. Definitely. That makes sense. Well, it's lovely that they have uh, something like C4 to help them. <laughs> Try, yeah. <laughs> Maybe a little bit, right? Yeah. Hopefully one day we'll be, uh, you know, our, our vision is that every artist uh, in Atlanta earn a living making art. And once we reach that goal, we'll be um, irrelevant, so. <laughs> I, I, you know, some of the greatest models that are, like, people I like that do whatever to help people, their, their most uh, desired thing is to be redundant and unnecessary. Right, yeah. <laughs> Which I like. Yeah. Uh, okay, so I'd like to wrap these up with a, just a lighter note. Mm -hmm. So, what do you want to do in the next five years? Just you. Me? Um, I'm actually going to be pursuing an MBA. Um, oh, yeah, okay. So, looking at an MBA over at Georgia State, um, doing some more traveling, um, like personally. Um, you know, I, I'm doing some traveling this year, but I think you know, my kids are going to be um, out of school or close to out of school. You know, so, um, you know, just, it's going to be a completely different shift, I think. I've spent, you know, most of my adult life raising kids. And so I'm really looking forward to that time that my husband and I have to refocus some of our energies on that different path. Yeah. Definitely. Kids will still be around. Yeah. <laughs> they got their own lives. They got their own lives. Yeah. Nice. Good deal. Okay. Well, um, thank you for coming on. Is there anything you'd like to plug with the website for C4? Or oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Should be better at that. Um, so, yeah, if you're interested in learning more about C4 Atlanta, um, we're really easy to find. We're c4atlanta.org. That's O-R-G. Um, if you uh, want to reach out to uh, any of our staff members, um, you can email us at actionteam at c4atlanta.org, and we're always happy to... Uh, uh, answer questions and, um, and include people more in what it is that we're doing. Good deal. Cool. Well, thank you so much for being on. I appreciate it, and uh, I know you have to go. So, <laughs> yeah. um, you have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thanks, yeah. Heath. Thanks for having me on.
Bye everybody. Bye. Talk to you next time.